50 episodes. It's a lot. It is a lot. It's 50 episodes in 22 months. That is sociology. Do you know what? <laughs> that's actually a lot of work. It hasn't seemed like work. It's, no. It's fun, man. Do you know what I mean? It's been a bit of banner. It's been really cool. Welcome to Surviving Society with Shanto and Tiso. Towards a more sociable sociology. How was the UK? You moved out at 13. It was wow. <laughs> it's different from Jamaica. Um, it's more prettier buildings, nice, smell fresh. It was real good. It was captivating. Everything was just it was like I was a kid. I was a kid, but it was like I was a little five year old get candy <laughs> from your mum or your dad. <laughs> it was it was good. It was exciting. And where did you live at first? Um, I was living at London, White City, West London. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was good there. It was a good time. School days, it was great. Who were you living with? I was living with my auntie, my cousin, at the time. Would you say you adjusted well to England? Yeah, adjusted very well. I kind of knew what I wanted, but. Yeah, I just did very well, especially in school. It was, I wasn't the most outspoken person, but when it's time for me to speak, I'll speak. And did it take long for England to become your home? No, it didn't. It was everyone at my school let me feel welcoming, and, and I don't know if it's because I was from Jamaica or what, but. It was like I was, it was like I was famous. Everybody wanted to know me. I'm fresh, and I'm from Jamaica, so <laughs> everybody wanted to know what's Jamaica like. And so finding friend wasn't hard, or becoming a part of the culture, the, the England itself wasn't very hard. It, it, you, I kind of fit in, like if I wasn't, like I was born there. Like that's my home from the start, from the get go. Hello. Guess what? It's the 50th episode. And this is our last episode of this season. 50 episodes, it's a lot, it's a lot. It is a lot, it's 50 episodes in 22 months. That is sociology. Yeah, it's a lot. Do you know what? <laughs> it's, it's, that's actually a lot of work, but it hasn't seemed like work. It's, no. It's fun, man, do you know what I mean? It's been a bit of banner. It's been fun, it's been really cool. We are really excited today to be joined by Luke Dinarona, <laughs> who I'm a big fan of, whose writing I think is incredible. And I was just talking about how often when I've read his work or listened to his podcast deportation discs, they've made it's made me quite emotional because of the subject matter which Luke's going to talk us through. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Thanks Luke. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your research area and how you came to be doing this research. Sure. So my PhD was on deportation, particularly with people who've been deported from the UK to Jamaica. My interest was with people who'd been criminalised, so had a record or had interacted with the police at least, and then been uh, deported following that. And particularly people who'd been in the UK for a lot of their lives. So the four guys who feature in the... Uh, thesis and soon-to-be book are all moved between the ages of 10 and 14 and spent over half their lives in the UK and their family members often have British citizenship so for most of them whether it's mum, dad, siblings, step-parents, partners, children um, tend to be British. So it's kind of a the project is kind of about deportation which is lived as banishment really so people the, the title the working title is Deporting Black Britons which is to try and get at the fact that a lot of these people who you'll find in Jamaica, but also in other countries around the world, um, are indistinguishable from black British citizens. And I got into the project, I'd worked a bit with migrants, with refugees and asylum seekers in my undergrad. Uh, and then my masters are focused on the representation of, uh, I've got square quotes now, foreign <laughs> criminals or foreign national prisoners. Yeah. And the representation of them in the media because there was a kind of prioritisation to deport anyone with a record from about 2006 onwards. Mm. So I was trying to work out what was happening at that time. And then I wanted to try and meet some of the people because the thing that happened at that time was, the thing that I was interested in was that people in detention centres, uh, the proportion of people who were seeking asylum fell a little bit and the proportion of people who had been in prison previously increased. And that meant that 
uh, people who worked in detention were finding a lot of people with London, Brummie, Manchester, Nottingham accents because they'd been brought up in the UK. And then you moved from Jamaica yourself. Maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah. At first, I thought I was going for a summer holiday. <laughs> Turns out I got into a high school in year 10. And at first, it was it was new. I was I was open to the idea because I was now with my mom, and like I got in a new environment, and it seemed like good. So I was like, yeah, moving to London was was exciting. It was new, but it wasn't what I thought it was. It wasn't as high class. I didn't really see. Uh, what I saw on the TV, you know? <laughs> so yeah, London, what do you mean by that? In London you'd expected it to be... How was it different to what you expected before you before you came? And you were how old, sorry, just... Yeah, I was, I was just 14, 15. At the time, like, growing up, we watched TV and... Like the people talk, all of them speak and on TV and on the shows and things. Yeah, that is that was what I expected. But um, I expected to see big houses and 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 like more class than to see like tower flats. And uh, we lived in a council estate where where it was just a, a a one bedroom and we convert the living room into another bedroom to occupy more people in the family and. I'm like, I saw more ghettoness in London, which we never expect. So mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was new, but it, like it was, it was welcoming at the same time because it was different than Jamaica and growing up. Like I'm like, yeah, I welcome it really. Right. So you saw through the the spe- specifics of citizenship that the dr- there was a drop, and you're like, what's that drop? Oh, actually, we're just deporting people that are seen as in quotations British yeah so it, I guess it was because the prioritization was to get anyone with a with a sentence of over 12 months that's what I'm say like what is what was the sentences what's the infraction for people a, a whole variety so basically foreign offenders get the same kinds of offenses as British citizen offenders the only increase is there's a slight increase for drugs which is usually importation and a slight increase for fraud and forgery which is fake passports <laughs> all the things you might need to do to survive when you've been illegalised. Okay. So, the, the you know, the range of sentences can be a whole bunch of things. Drugs is very common. So, for example, half of the people who were deported following criminal conviction to Jamaica in 2013 <laughs> were for drugs offences. Okay. So and that's, there's know. a couple in your research, isn't there? Yes. That, that, that's and I met a lot of people who had that. People who didn't have many other employment options, sold drugs, found themselves criminalised. A whole bunch of reasons which you, which you guys know why people might end up in the criminal justice yeah. system, including most centrally racism. And poverty, and then they end up facing deportation, even though they don't know necessarily know anyone in Jamaica or other places. And was one of the guys, one of the guys who's on um, deportation disc, mm. and we're going to actually play some of the some segments from your podcast, Luke, on this episode. Mm-hmm. One of the guys it's for carrying weed, wasn't it? One of the, no, I mean both of the two that I've done the podcast for was was uh, intent possession with intent to supply class A's. Right, okay. But I have met, so to give one example of yeah, someone yeah. who has, you might have read that in one of the Possib- short articles, so rather than one of the guys for deportation disc, there was a guy who I'll call Durrell, who lived in the UK from seven, West London from this is, seven. This is, this is him, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah until yeah. 31. And his only convictions were for possession of marijuana. But he was deported under a scheme, and this is a whole other conversation we might not <laughs> have, but co- a scheme is- called Operation Nexus, by which the police build a case against someone on the basis, and I'm not using doublespeak here, of non-convictions. So that is, the Home Office haven't got, um, haven't got a conviction to base the deportation on, but they, they think that, or the police think that, working together with the Home Office, uh, immigration authorities, that he's a bad guy, so they invoke issues around the gang. So, you know, he had pictures from Facebook were used in police intelligence in a Nexus bundle, and non-convictions, arrests, arrests that didn't stick, charges that didn't stick, NFAs, no further action, arrests, were all used in a case to say on the balance of probabilities. He's undesirable. He's un- exactly. In fact, that's pretty much the language of it. It's that his, his presence is not conducive to the public good. And he was sent home and he had f- six British citizen children, four of whom he was the primary care of. His wi- wife, he's got wife as, as well. Partner, yeah. Yeah, 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 partner. 
Um, who was working, you know. So there's these, also these interesting things around social reproduction and men who maybe can't work either because of they've got a record or because of their immigration status, then doing a lot of kind Caring. of care work and that not being valued anyway because it's gendered, but then be especially being invisible when it's a black guy presenting in an immigration tribunal. So that was the case you're thinking of. And yeah, that's the painful one to, to think about. Well, it's actually because it's just yeah, disgusting. Yeah. It's actually disgusting. Like, it, what happens when they go back, when they get deported mm -hmm. to the place where they go back to, but when they arrive there, obviously mm -hmm. they have to go through formal procedures. So how does the government treat them? Does the government treat them as criminals or they, do they try to reintegrate them into society? If they are reintegrated, what's, yeah, what's, that what's the social cost? Because obviously people, the locals, mm -hmm. might perceive them in a certain way. You're not from here. Yeah. I mean, that's a really complicated question, but one that is live in Jamaica, so there is a conversation about the figure of the deportee is, uh, um, again, I use scare quotes, the figure deported people in Jamaica don't like that phrase because the phrase is attached with a lot of stigma. Buju Banton has a song called Deportee from about 92 or something, well, okay. which is worth checking out. <laughs> but um, there has been a lot of stigma. There's, there's a lot of kind of failed migration narrative. You had a chance and you wasted it. Everyone would go far and if they could and you went over there and squandered your opportunities. But there's also sometimes a kind of unremarkable hospitality and integration of people into families. It can take time. People make the new families. So different things happen. But the, the question you asked about the government is the interesting one because what the Jamaican authorities do uh, around and with people who are forcibly returned is partly determined by their relations, bilateral relations with the UK. Okay. So making it, you know, deportation is not, is not banishment. The important thing to, to note that it's not a form of expulsion where you just send someone to the edge of territory and say you can't come back you have to work with the government because you have to kind of confirm that they are a member of the state to which you want to deport them and so it's, it relies on two states working together so for example Zimbabwe until very recently made it very difficult Iran and China make it very difficult um, and that means that you can't deport people there very easily Jamaica on the other hand and Nigeria make it very easy partly because of these relationships in which complying with UK immigration control is tied to the receipt of development assistance, investment, yeah. trade, money. money. Yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Um, and so, so the, the process for how people are managed when they get back, how they're verified, is partly that, that system has been modernised through British funding through the aid budget. Um, the aid budget going to help reintegration. The, the point you then said is, do they get help to reintegrate? Well, there is no real welfare state in Jamaica that functions very well. So they don't really get assistance to reintegrate the, the bare-bones services that are there to help people with customs, with getting a TRN, which is like a national insurance number, and potentially with homelessness mm. support. There's one shelter, which is not a place I'd want anyone to spend any time, but know a lot <laughs> of people that have. And that, that stuff's funded again by the British, or was until, until this year, uh, through the aid budget. What's, Are you? What's, so I can't actually. I'm actually sat here like I can't even. Britain is I, fucking. It just feels like an extension of empire, basically. Hundred percent. Um, I would I agree. It is, but like I said, we said in the last one. Since mass migration, there's always been an issue. There's always from the very time that ship was coming over, there was an issue. On, from both sides of the house is that they didn't want people or there. not mass migrations that happened for years and I years know. maybe once we decided that it was going to be positioned as the problem well, so I'm, just, I'm just talking about from the, from the post-war period like they've decided like and so it's replicated in all kind of machinery of government like so aid is linked to kind of expelling people keeping people out yeah, and I think that's... I, I think don't think people know that, Lee. I don't think they People do. don't I, know that. Listen, no. listen to this. Yeah, yeah. AIDS is linked I mean, to deportation. I mean, one of the really interesting things you can do is go on Diffid's website. This is what I did, and I was struck in the same way Diffid you is are. the Department of... Department for International Development. Um, and they have links with uni, you know, with uni researchers, especially Sussex, I think. But anyway, that Diffid is the Department for International Development, and they deal with the aid budget. So, And the UK recently proudly was able to say it... it spends 0.7% of its budget on the on development on aid, which is what the UN requested. And so they're now they're meeting the targets. But the, the interesting thing when you go on their website, it's, it's so obviously strategic and tactical and geopolitical, but you go on their website and it says things like, you know, dealing with crime and corruption in Jamaica is important because it will stabilise the economy, creating opportunities for British businesses and trade and investment. So that it's almost as though Diffid are writing to the right-wing people who say, why are you wasting money on them? 
when you should be putting your own first. They're not writing to us to say, oh, AIDS all cuddly and really nice. They're actually, because they're navigating two people, you think about it, there's so much critique coming from the other side yes. saying, yes. how dare you spend 0.7% when we've got people relying on food banks. Yeah. Um, and then you've got us thinking, you know, what isn't aid supposed to be about helping or assistance or dealing with inequality? It's never, it's of course never been, never been that. Why would we expect the British government to spend any money on that? But, but so they're, they're quite honest. Yeah, they're quite. But, but this is the thing. I think people, yes. it, you don't have to dig that far to see exactly. the truth. Like so, but you have to. But but you only know what you know is what I'm saying. Well, like so, I this mean, thing is like really. Like, I, I, I didn't know this, but it's making me feel a bit sick. But, but I, mean, I almost I think not a lot of people know this. This is this is the narrative that I always get upset about. When you think of aid, you think of starving black people, and you mm-hmm. think of people with flies in their face, and you think of Bob Geldof. Yeah. That's what you think. Yeah. And that narrative that like, you might see in like the so charity aid adverts that come on like, when I'm just watching Jeremy Carl when it used to be on. <laughs> you know, T, you we do not <laughs> watch <laughs> that. But listen, <laughs> but listen, you see that. You so that's what you see, right? But if you, you don't scratch that, the EU have given more money in development, development aid to Niger to stop people coming exactly. through. And that's development money. And Niger's not going to refuse that money, but they're criminalising migration. It's a migration route. We've been talking about this recently, how mm. EU's borders are extending beyond Europe to keep yeah, black and brown people but, out. And, and so like I said, it's not in the kind of text, in the academic text, people refer to Europe as fortress Europe. That's always been the case. And it's not... For, for non-white people, that's always been the case. For themselves, they can move around. It's free, you know? I think, the, I think you're right. I just think that... And I think that who gets to move is always part of what produces racial categories and racial hierarchies. But I suppose it's, what's interesting is the different kind of means, forms of governance through which that happens. So I, I agree that, for example, externalised border controls have been the case for as long as we've had visa offices anywhere. Uh, for as long as you've had people checking documents on boats in South Asia travelling to England in the 50s or whatever, or uh, right back to the 19th century. The difference, I think, is the, and something more pernicious about it, is the the use of the development assistance in particular. And the case yeah. in Niger yeah. is exactly right. Like, that's the amount of money. There's a, I think it's the European Trust Fund for Africa, which mm-hmm. is interesting they use the phrase trust fund. But anyway, if you look that up... <laughs> It's all about how can the EU channel millions, billions of pounds towards controlling migration at what they call source and transit. So that Niger is key. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Morocco, places like that. Of course, Libya historically has been a place that they have, Italy have worked with and the EU to try and, you know, so these detention camps and centres that are such awful places for mm. violations of human dignity they're shocking. and rights. They're shocking. And they're all, they're all inexplicable without EU Mm-hmm. Funding, they don't, you know, this 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 geography of of bordering in, in in the African continent doesn't make sense without that that money. Got, and, this, and this is what I'm trying to say. So it's it kind of furthers it. So when I was looking at the kind of case in Nigeria, like how the they're just picking up people almost arbitrarily now just to keep the money coming. Yes, and that's insane. Like your people picking up people that don't even. One guy, he's in the center. He goes, I, I haven't spoke to my parents. They don't even know where I am. Mm. So this guy had been arbitrarily picked up because they think he was a, a, a migrant trying to escape mm. through Niger up to go to, through, is it Morocco, into yeah. Italy. And I'm like, the European, the European Union is funding this. It's under, you, under, because so, everyone's so concerned about being swamped by migrants. And, it, and that's, that's what's scary to me. Like, they've pushed it so far it's mm-hmm. in another country. They cause another country to press their people even further. And you could think about it as a kind of global mm. you know, if you if you were to I mean, this is yeah, this is a global set of controls that you know, that, that basically the UK's immigration policy is completely dependent on. Uh, persuading diplomatically or bullying poorer, weaker states, often post colonial ones, to comply. So the Another striking example to give. You said it was going to be depressing and sad, but oh well, mm. here we are. This is the world. Um, <laughs> is no, the, people need to know. People need to know. Is the UK funding of prisons in particularly Nigeria and Jamaica? The Jamaican one hasn't gone through because of stuff that happened there with politics, with party politics in Jamaica. But David Cameron famously in 2015 offered £25 million to build a modern prison in Kingston so that then there'd be 300 bed spaces for Jamaican nationals who were convicted in UK prisons to serve their UK sentences in Jamaica. <laughs> so, And that would be a compulsory prison transfer agreement. So there's already okay. prison transfers happen, but they normally rely on you know, the prisoner saying, OK, I'll go back home if they feel like that's home. Um, this was compulsory, so this was the idea. But 
they did fund one successfully in Nigeria. They've tried elsewhere, I think, other parts of the African continent. But they're, they, they're, that's funded, again, through the aid budget, but particularly through a part of the aid budget, which is called the Conflict Security and Stability Fund. And so if you want to if you want to think about why development or aid is not what it might seem to the kind of, you know, to the comic relief audience, mm. then, then just looking at the Conflict Security Stability Fund, which is completely about stabilizing places, uh, dealing with conflict, but all in pursuit of... Moving people out. Yeah, in, in pursuit of both immigration controls, but that is also part of kind of stabilizing the conditions for capitalist exploitation in one way or another. And Gargi, who you had on the show, writes really well about this, about what territorialization and what um, borders do for the, for the reproduction of racial capitalism. So aid is not... <laughs> aid is not a charity and it and it never has been but that seems especially obvious in, yeah. in, a, in a bordered world just for my introduction to aid I've always seen it part of like linked to the IMF and debt traps and stuff like that so mm -hmm. it was never it's never designed for the recipient's benefit even mm -hmm. though that's what it's meant mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. it either ensnares them in debt and like we've seen it we start policing them so effectively when so I started thinking to myself when these states were granted their independence what did, have, what did they get? Did they get political independence? No. Economic independence? No, it's not mm. really. It's independence in name only, it seems. Mm. Because you're still controlled by your colonial masters in a very, both financially and politically, yeah. your own citizen. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's slightly depressing. You see how you were talking about the sort of, the appeasement of the far right, possibly, and how you don't have to dig that far to find out where bits of money are coming from in terms of how we facilitate deportation. Mm -hmm. It's making me think about this sort of current moment that we're in and how, or conjuncture, and how this could possibly be used as a vote winner more overtly for the far right. Do you know what do you know what I mean? As in like I don't feel like we're that far off of all these things you've been saying being used as a reason for people to vote for a, an individual or a party. Do you know what I mean? Like in, I know in terms of the In terms of like so this is so this is where our aid goes. Okay, this is right. what this money is for. This is why we're doing it. Like being really frank and overt with what we are doing this for. And that you mean that would then make people who are conservative in some ways yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. supportive or of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I think... Do you know what I mean? I know, we're, we, I know we have, like, bits of yeah. that sort of thing now, like, in terms of how we talk about immigration, it's just discussed in any way in the in mainstream media, but I really don't feel like we're that far off of being really specific about what we will do to people that we don't feel, like, fit our imagined Britishness or Englishness more. I don't know. I, I read an article today in today's Financial Times, and it's about the pendulum swinging back to this 19th, social, 19th century notion of Englishness, particularly mm -hmm. embodied in um, Boris Johnson, Rhys Mogg, and Nigel Jeremy Farage. Hunt, even. Like, I don't, he's not all, immune they, from they, that they, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, they yeah, said yeah. that in terms, of, in terms of classic archetypes, yeah. but they embody that kind of paternalistic, this notion of Englishness as whiteness, as white, and as being the elite is upper class, mm -hmm. and you have the working classes who will follow, but we're going to start removing people. But you could obviously right. argue that that hasn't ever really gone away. No, no, it's about, it, it's, but maybe we're speed it's, 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 it's more, more pronounced. pronounced. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, this is not my, like, kind of parliamentary politics. It tires me out like it probably does a lot, a <laughs> yeah, you, you yeah, yeah. lot as well. But I've been thinking recently about how the news cycle makes us think that there's more people. I don't think there are that many people, or there are a lot of young people who don't like any of these Tory options and yes. the Englishness is probably in you know decaying and the kind of the hegemony of an, an English a proper Englishman it might be it might be winning with the older generation of Tory voters for example it might have some renewed kind of significance or be more popular but I think it's also important that we step away from the kind of theatre the ridiculous theatre of what, wherever we're at at the moment with Brexit and think about the country in general and all the people who aren't perhaps seduced by any of this and just think politics is stupid. I, I, and I think I, there are more people like that than we think about when we read the news sometimes. I totally agree with what you're saying, Luke, and I feel like sometimes, yeah, we do pay into that theatrical politics that we have, yeah, on the ongoing news cycle. However, there are a group of people that are middle class that live within, yeah, the home counties, yeah. Cornwall, Devon, whatever, that were taken by leave rhetoric and all the stuff that's happening now. And I feel like those people, by 
through yeah political spin and using just derogatory language are able to be captured by these things in a way that they can see as beneficial to their country. I think and, it's true. I just think yeah. that these are people who are particularly have a particular voice and vote yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and have a kind of outlet in the mail, for example. Which yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying that this this is not significant. I just mean it's always worth remembering when yeah. you look at someone course, like yeah, Rhys really I mean, Farage is more confusing for me. Yeah. But when you look at someone like who's popular within the Tory party, there's a limited set of options. And, you know, Cameron being in power didn't ever mean that the majority of the population actually mm. thought he was a, you know, stand-up guy or whatever. Mm. It just means that politics only ever captures so much of what is really going on culturally. So the the reversion to a version of Englishness, I'd just say, I just all I'm saying is that that's still a smaller yeah, yeah, proportion than sometimes we think when we get worried about how is Boris popular, <laughs> which is absurd, but, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Because, I, I, well, for me, I spend most of my time in, like, far-right chat rooms and stuff yeah. like that, so looking at it. But, so you see that experience God, I don't envy of... envy you. <laughs> Honestly, I still don't know how he does this to this day. I just don't know how you do it. But it's quite interesting when you talk about deportation. And yeah. So when I was looking at, so some of the stuff like the, the themes that come up is like send these people back, send mm. these people back. And I just want to know, kind of feel like when you're speaking to these people, what's the experience of these people that you're speaking to who obviously have been there for? Mm. How do they feel about being sent back to a place where most of them don't even consider home anymore? Yeah. I guess, I assume. Or have never considered home. Mm. Yeah, I mean... I would qualify that a little bit. The things that you have to say in kind of legal cases or in journalistic pieces might be that, you know, they're so for example, I write this in the introduction, but that by saying this black Britain, so deporting black Britons, I'm not trying to say actually they are really British and not Jamaican. Mm. The point is that their identifications with both of those places have changed over time. Mm. The real the real difficulty is one, unfamiliarity, no family, and the just material difficulties that people face in Jamaica in general, especially you know, in, yeah, in general, in some ways, it's not just a uniquely specific experience to the deported person. It's also what the urban poor are going through in Kingston or in Mobay at this time. So I would say, yeah, uh, I forgot what the original question was now. No, the original question was, how do they feel about yeah. being... Yeah, OK, so, yeah, it's, so that the point that I was leading on to, I guess, is it's different for different people. Some people do have a, one of their parents, actually, who might be supportive. Some of them have a cousin or a friend or a brother. But for a lot of people... It's the first few months and couple of years is incredibly difficult. Lots of people struggle with homelessness. Getting a job is impossible. Navigating just poor functioning bureaucracy to get an ID to then apply for a job or to apply for a driving license or whatever it might be. I think in terms of how people feel about the idea of sending them back, the kinds of things you'd expect and the kinds of things you're saying, it's very, very common to hear people say, England made me a criminal um, or I became, I learned what I, I learned to sell drugs and got nothing. I don't know what I'm doing here. I think people often feel they're probably less in contact with the kinds of people who, see, who say, send them all back, maybe. Although what, one interesting thing from Chris is he, he described, he said he hadn't experienced much racism, but then when he spoke about the police, he was like, oh yeah, obviously they gave me a hard time. So he, so he didn't pick that out as being specific. The two instances of racism he said were both being told to go back to your country on, a, on public transport, actually. But what, was it, what I found interesting was that he didn't link that, being told to go back to your country. To, to racism. To, to, no, he, did, he thought that was oh, racist, okay, okay, okay. but he didn't then link that to deportation, which I thought was really, and I tried to write a bit about that. So, like, you know, the kind of standard, the most popular refrain of British racism is go back, go back to where you came from, go back to your country. And yet when you are forcibly moved, you see the actual flight, the bureaucratic side of it, the legal side of it, the, the architecture of you being taken from a detention centre to a plane to home. I'm doing scare quotes again. You don't see that in terms of racism, that's something else. Mm -hmm. It might be injustice, it might not be fair, but often you say, because I've got kids, because I've been there a long time, rather than necessarily seeing what the state's doing in its legal terms as related to what the white person shouts at you on the bus. And obviously those two things are always yeah, in dialogue. Yeah. The, the, you know, send, send them back or go back to your country has always relied on the reality of that being a possibility. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, those two things are in, yeah, yeah. in dialogue. And you see that when people are, so this is a point I try and make as well, that the kind of figure of the racialized outsider or the person who's subject to racism is in dialogue with immigration law. So and you see that when people are attacked as asylum seekers. So a group of boys attacking someone and saying, you're asylum seekers, and then beating someone to within a few inches of their life. In Croydon, there was a case like that, for example, in the shadow of Luna House, where home office, the Home Office's decision-making mm -hmm. is based. But that, so 
that point is the thing I'm trying to make as well, is that the kind of links people don't see. So racism is someone telling me to go back to their country or someone in an interaction, and then the legal kind of bureaucratic policy side of things, trying to bring those two together, both for Chris as well, and I've spoken to him about this, like how do we think these things are linked? And trying to develop that literacy myself and with other people to think about what is the role of the law, immigration law, in structuring the kind of cultural that we all know. I guess kind of how I would think it had, it kind of links that kind of creates that cultural framework that you reference all the time without realizing you're referencing. So I suppose yeah, if you didn't think it was your reality, you wouldn't say it. Yeah. But you don't you don't understand that we it's not a conscious thing. It's I, something yeah. that exists. And that's the Brexit thing, right? The hate crime it, it increased. Of course, it was uncontrollable, and it wasn't just about European nationals. Of course, it involved a lot of Islam gendered kind of Islamophobia with particularly women who were wearing hijab. That was one of the biggest instances of the spike in hate crime. But there was a lot of go back to your country. We voted out. We don't want you here anymore. And I had people tell me that. So yeah, there's an obvious, the other, obvious dialogue, yeah. right? Like, here's a vote where we all get to say that we don't want to be in Europe, that we don't like migrants. Really, it was a referendum on free movement. It was a referendum on migration. Here's, we voted, we won. And then this kind of emboldened bunch of people in public areas, especially public transport, which I find interesting, then telling people, we voted out, get out. We don't want you any of you lot around here, and all the other kind of racist epithets you might hear. But that, that's the most obvious, discreet kind of example of when... As it's so interesting. I've never really thought about it in terms of thinking about how those instances of racism are a conversation with both belonging, deportation and immigration. That's what is happening mm. there. It's actually maybe... I haven't thought about it because it's, it's almost like too painful to think about it like that. Like someone is like, it's already a horrible experience in that anyway, but actually putting it in conversation with those things is really important. And just on your point about public transport, mm. it's a theme on this podcast. Mm. We mm. like, we got it from Professor Mir, mm. who's just become a professor, was described public transport racism, I think is oh, a, yeah, mi- a microclimate of yeah, white supremacy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Honestly, you've got a, we've got a talk, or a hub of white supremacy. Yeah. There's something in that. Yeah. I really feel like it's such an untouched thing. The majority of things that have happened to me since Brexit have been on public transport. Yeah. Like, and Anup Nayak has a paper where he talks about someone, you know, some white kids in the northeast shouting terrorists at him. But he, yeah. he also talks about kind of street racism as kind of territorialization of the white nation. Mm. So it's about space. It's yeah, about, yeah. I mean, there's an obvious thing is when you're in public space, you interact with a bunch of people who you wouldn't normally, whether that's in your house or you or the places that you go to, pubs you go to, whatever. But there's also, I think, something, and I tried to think a little bit about this, which is about controls on denying people the right to public space. Places where people, are, I find it really interesting in terms of citizenship rights. So when the police, for example, restrict... This is a slightly different point, but when the police, for example, harassed one of the guys in the project called Ricardo, harassed him whenever he left his house, arrested him all the time, he was 15, 16, decided he was bad, you know, accused him of robberies all the time. A kind of extreme case of of police racism. My point is, weren't they vindicated when he was deported? Because what they were doing was effectively denying him the right to what kind of liberals would call main, main fundamental citizenship rights, right to free association, kind of right to move around freely, right to the presumption of innocence, right to childhood even. And they were treating him in a discriminatory way and denying him those citizenship rights. But then when they finally got a conviction on him and then he's deported, weren't, you know, in some ways, that they, in some ways they're proved right. He didn't have a right to public space. He didn't have a right to free association. Okay. He was elite. He was illegal. So he lived up to the expectations so that he he justified their existence, justified their behaviour. Yeah, and the point is that if you can police in discriminatory ways, but increasingly the population of young people are multi-status. So there's a lot of them might not have British passports, and that leads then to their expulsion from the country. Not only expulsion through prison. Prison is a form of expulsion, but expulsion from the national territory altogether. Then my point is. Police will know that some of the populations of young people that they're harassing and, poli- and over-policing are subject to immigration control. And they now work increasingly with immigration authorities in different ways at different stages. Whether in police stations you can get your immigration status checked or whether in the immigration tribunal. So it becomes like a numbers game. If you keep doing it, there's, gonna, there's bound to be one or two that are going to be like that. Yeah. So we just keep doing it. Yeah, and so the racism... My point, I guess, is that racism at the border, the racism that defines who counts as a citizen, and the racism that we normally think about, which is set about second-class citizenship, about black and brown Britons being treated worse than white Britons, that that racism affecting, discriminating against 
people who are black and brown British citizens is is technically not not legal. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be happening. So institutional racism is a problem. But discriminating against foreigners is is fundamentally what immigration law is designed to do. That's what checks in universities, in hospitals, NHS, for driving yeah. license, yeah, court, the NHS um, are designed to do. They're designed to find and discriminate against uh, and and people who are who are foreign and, and finding foreigners. In, in Britain is pretty hard when it's we have multi-ethnic and multi-status. So my point is the police are in that terrain. They're deciding who to police, obviously based on very institutionally racist histories. But they're also negotiating now and realising that some people are subject to immigration control. And I'm interested in what that, what that says and how that makes a mockery of even their meagre attempts to deal with institutional racism. Because they are effectively policing some people who have, who according to law have no right to be there. That's what the hostile environment is to do, to make life unlivable for people who are scare quits again, illegal immigrants. So the, what I, I suppose what I mean is that the, the person who is arrested, harassed, that seems to me more illegitimate if they have British citizenship rights. But if they don't, then yeah. aren't the police therefore kind of vindicated and encouraged in discriminatory treatment by the fact that they're policing a population of some people who don't have any right to be here? Yeah. And so I guess what you're saying, so like the... The whole idea of them trying to be impartial, mm -hmm. it's, it's a myth. It, it's not going to be true. Mm -hmm. And just then that's why I kind of try to describe Britain as multi-status, and that's partly because I think in kind of sociology of ethnicity and race, which we probably all feel is our home, mm. I think a bit slow on the uptake to join together a kind of everyday understanding of urban environments, of multiculture, of, you know, some of the fluffy stuff that came out on, on I think, on diversity stuff, mm. um, with the kind of hard stuff of bordering. And I think now the reality is if you speak to young people around here, for example, mm -hmm. around where we are right now in New Cross, you'll find that young people do know about the I fact that right, the, board, the border splits, totally and right. we're a bit slow. Yeah, I think you're totally right, um, completely. For example, I went to visit someone in detention who grew up just down the road from here, and... I was there in the lift in this detention centre, which was the Brook House near Gatwick, right by the runway. And there were these other three lads, three young black guys from Peckham, I think. And they were visiting their friend. And they were all, like, you know, chatting in London vernacular or, what, or whatever. And uh, it was quite funny. They were talking about shot in weed, which I quite enjoyed, given the, <laughs> the fact that they'd been through two doors and they had to go through another two doors. It was kind of there's something subversive about the way they didn't give two shits about the fact that they were in this prison, effectively. Mm. Uh, but then they were visiting their friend and then they were just chilling with their friend for an hour or so. But these are young, they were probably, I don't know, 16 to 20, I don't know how old they were, visiting someone who went to the same school as them, who's in the detention centre. And I think that we need to be, not only academically, because I don't know what, where the place of acad academia is necessarily in these urgent political questions. It's not always just about getting a bit of research out for a, yeah. for a journal article, but just aware of it and thinking about it, whatever we're doing, that this multi-status question is really important for how we think about racism. But you see, like, obviously, I'm probably oldest here, so I'm, like, my experience of knowing people like that is so far removed. Like, I wouldn't even understand, like, when I started doing mentoring and speaking to kids, and all the kids were from different places, like, some were uh, Turkish, some were Cypriot, some were from the Congo, n they all had multi-status um, nationalities. Yeah. And they, all, they all saw themselves had multi multi identities yeah. even and they they're switching through them every second cycling yes. through them and it's amazing mm -hmm. to see mm -hmm. and so like i said to you before in the podcast like, i asked them a question like what do you identify with and some would say they would even forgo any nationality and just say call myself a muslim right and then and then depending on the space they're in they're mm -hmm. different things but it, but ultimately when they're together none of that matters they were yeah. just themselves. Yeah. But they cycle through these in a way that I would I'd find like amazing because they act like they kind of like a higher functioning. Like I struggle sometimes just being me, but they're being different me's all the time. Yeah. Mm. And it's an amazing to see. Mm. They weren't really aware of the kind of racialness outside how they'd be racialized. Yeah, yeah. Because they wouldn't like one of the questions asked me, one of the kids said to me, do you work with a lot of white people? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> all the time. I was like, yeah. And like, really? I was like, oh, I didn't think they were. But you wouldn't, like, in, yeah. in Dawson, predominantly, well, depends what part of Dawson you go to, yeah. but predominantly multi-ethnic. Yeah. And it was just interesting to see how these kids 
cycles, like I said, so what you're saying is true, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Like to be in touch with that, that kind of that notion of these kids, they, they understand that world. Of they, they might, there's a threat of being, some of them yes, being deported exactly. or being harassed. Yeah. Not, not criminalised for the normal things they're criminalised for, but just because you, we feel you're undesirable. Yeah. And I think that's the, what you described there is also really nice. And we talked about finding some kind of moments of hope. I think that the thing that kind of, Paul Gilroy's work on conviviality, but other people who picked up Les Back's mm. stuff, even back in the 90s, on the kind of ordinary ways in which people get along across lines of difference. You had Ben Regali on here, didn't you? You talked about the same set, same set of things. That is a site of kind of hope because these young people make those distinctions seem unnatural and they make the possibilities of translation and solidarity and friendship and moving between different kinds of cultural spaces seem easy and exciting lived. and it always and lived, and, lived. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of generative of of culture which it always which is again a thing that I think that the, the people I named are interested in and that's I mean the thing is that then what the immigration control system does is atomize individuals and you know they are a legal person they're a legal individual who's constructed as being having broken the law or violated immigration policy and it's trying to find ways to harness the kind of convivial, everyday, ordinary uh, multiculture towards something political. Because I think that, and I think that that happens in different places at different times, but that's what you want. You want those people to also be kind of supported by people perhaps who know more about the law or about, you know, it's, yeah. it's, so, it's so difficult with cuts to legal aid. But I suppose what I mean is that at the neighbourhood level, we might see some different kinds of resistance. And we have done in places like Glasgow, you have mm -hmm. done where you, in Peckham, where you see the immigration raid vans getting chased away and smashed up but these young people also in their kind of perspective on the world what you might call double consciousness from living <laughs> with difference but being made to be different legally that's really where some hope is for those people finding ways to collectively resist <clears throat> what what is always you know an arbitrary and violent set of legal distinctions but i i, I was reading some of your work and it's kind of what kind of struck me is when you try you conceptually kind of thought, speak about whiteness and the individual of like someone who's owning property, mm. like how whiteness is identified with a certain certain kind of uh, set of rules, like material, material. Not even just like like the idea when you speak about rules and like mm. rule of law, we're a nation mm. of laws. Mm. So if you transgress this law, there's a punishment. So the kind of not just not just the English person, British person, sorry, the European. So they are kind of. They pay, they stick to the rules. We pay taxes. We yeah. All these we stand in line. Yeah. So we don't queue jump. We queued, yeah. and there's a set of notions, and so it got me thinking of this is kind of it's very embodied in the kind of enlightenment work of like John Locke, mm. the idea of owning a property. It makes you someone, mm. and this is, and if you don't own a property, and most people like this disenfranchised are not property owners. You're you're we're living in council, but council class. You yeah. you transgress laws, so you fall outside that norm of that kind of enlightenment deal of like from John Locke. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, that that's, I suppose, part of the point of the attempt at something like portraiture, which I'm trying to do, you know, whether deportation discs or book project or shorter pieces, is that the law, the, the thing you'll get on Twitter, I mean, who cares about what random white people say on Twitter, but they, t they, they do say stuff. So anyway, when, when I've written things, they say things like... Um, it's simple, illegal immigrant, what don't you understand about that? Broke the law, has to go home or something, you know? So effectively it's like, what don't you understand about the word elite? What don't you get? As though law and morality, as though anyone who's good does abides by the law, which is just absurd way of thinking about democratic processes in, in, any, in any case. But the point is to say, who you think of as illegal or who you think of as British and who you think of as foreign might be a lot blurred. And who cares about persuading that person? But the point is you can persuade a lot of people that actually the person who's a f apparently a foreign offender isn't that foreign. The person who's a criminal, actually there might be complex set of reasons that lead to them ending up being criminalised. And it's kind of trying to make those arguments sometimes through telling stories which can be effective for some people and for some forms. And I think with deportation, it does do that work. So it's, it kind of challenges the idea that the law, celebration of the law in that, in that particular version of British, Britishness, which to me it is very strong. Yeah, 100%, like, um, whenever I'm on, like, in those places, 
they won't say explicitly, but they, there's a, a strong sense of that the law says this. Mm. So because the law says it, it's and we are a, na- a nation of laws, yeah, yeah. and they start referring to things like Magna Carta, and, oh, yeah. and even even though it doesn't really make sense, it's that notion that there's these rules, so they have to go regardless. Yeah, yeah. I mean nationalism doesn't never really makes much sense. Uh, I don't know if you know the work of Valu. Yeah, you know Valu. Yeah. We like Valu. Uh, we yeah. haven't yet. Come on, Valu, please. He's, 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 he's great to listen to. He's great to he is. He's to such a good around. orator as well. Yeah, he, is. he loves it. Um, but his book on nationalism is, is coming out soon, and that I think is is also on that that the defining kind of feature of nationalisms is this nebulous uh, desire to exclude the outsider. So the kind of the exclusive character of nationalism is kind of what defines it. So it doesn't matter if they randomly quit in the Magna Carta and saying yeah. we're a nation of laws and. British values being this kind of very vague and strange patchy, no one knows what it means, but it, but it's defined it's what it's defined against that, that actually constitutes the force of that that nationalism. It got me thinking, like maybe maybe the problem is the nation state. Maybe that's the issue. The nation yeah. state it's problematic because it seeks to exclude people when we live in a globalized. We've always lived in a globalized world. So people always move freely. Well, not free, but people always moved about. Yeah. But this idea of this that you, there's a certain pe- group of people bonded to this territory. Yeah. And it's so it's so abstract. Yeah. But it causes these problems that that we can we we still haven't resolved. We're always working through. Yeah, I agree. I think that is a fundamental problem. Smash the nation state. There yeah. we are. We've done it. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted you to possibly talk through, Luke, is you mentioned it briefly earlier, but about how. The people that you've been speaking with and spent time with over the past four, four years, years now is how they have made sense of their experiences within the sort of interview setting, like sort of bringing it into sort of like sociology and methodsy mm-hmm. now. And mm-hmm. um, we've been trying to talk about this a little bit this season about people assign meaning to their experiences, but then when you try and sort of like question them slightly, they sort of think, oh yeah, like maybe that was, maybe that is linked to that. So you spoke about people yeah. talk, narrating racism yeah. and then you actually get them to think about yeah, how yeah. that those instances of where are you from go back to your own country yeah, yeah. are very much linked to deportation so what was that can you talk about that experience within the mm. interview and how you sort of have resolved that or even continue to talk about that with the participants because think about like our research as well like talking to people about racism who when we come into the interview say tell us these experiences that they don't think are racist and then we're like when we're like well okay but why aren't they or what would make it and then actually they leave it into being like yeah that was yeah so they change it yeah 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 so people like changing their mind about assisting people in articulating what mm-hmm. is actually happening to them, yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. And obviously in this case, it's really explicit. The time you get inside, locked up, incarceration, it, it really let you think and reflect. And before you make a choice, you have time to think. So it was, it was really helpful in there. Um, I really put, hold my head down, didn't get myself in no trouble. Look forward to every visit I get from my missus, the kids. Um, I just trying to keep my brain active when I was up in there. And it was rough at times, it was hard. Miss your family so much. And, but at the same time, you just have to hold strong for them. Because you know they're around the out holding strong for you. So you just got to just kind of like just hold your head down. I went, went back to college in there. and did a few things, painting and decorating. I came out with diplomas and stuff, so it was really, it was really a life-changing situation and let me look at life differently, not take life for granted and cherish every moment you have with your loved ones, friends, That that's all your friends, true friends, for example, so yeah. And did you communicate much with with your partner and with the girls? Yeah, um, I did storybooks for dad where I would sit in front of a video and I'd read a book and I'd send it to them. Um, we'd get family visits. We had normal visits. Um, where family visit is where I get to interact more with the kids so I get to play with them. I get to where on a normal visit I could just sit in a chair and I can't move from that chair. So um, it was good. It was good, but it was bad. Yeah. 
So yeah. Yeah. And I guess there's partly the the count the the opposite to that would be the idea that there's a, they have a real view which is unchanging and you're not supposed to interfere with it. But obviously, you know that people are moving and learning and changing. And I mean, so my work was I actually did a my PhD in anthropology, awkwardly situated there with a with a supervisor who wasn't an anthropologist, but it meant using ethnographic methods, mm. which I mean can be defined as I, the 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 pithy definition I like is deep hanging out. Um, (laughs) but there's also yeah I mean kind of or the close observation of particular people's lives in particular places but so um, it meant that you know first time I was in Jamaica was four months then two months then five weeks then three weeks so it was quite a lot of time and I met the four guys in the project within the first four weeks Mm. and I thought that I would do more people uh, you know have more people involved but it ended up being four and I met I met a bunch of other people and know a bunch of other people really well but for writing it I wanted to just keep it to four and we kept in touch after I'd been there for the first four months via WhatsApp a lot, so sending each other voice notes. Um, I suppose the deep hanging out point is important because you become part of one another's lives and shapes probably the encounters, especially with the four guys, definitely with three of them. One of them's kind of in emergency mode. But the, the three, I think that we kind of like shaped each other's lives in quite significant ways. Um, and that, that means that the way in which they think about things will have shifted slightly. I think the... I mean, this is like the kind of sociological imagination, right? The link between encouraging people to think about the link between personal, is it private, private troubles and public issues or something? Yeah, so, and so that happened in in the process for for, Mm. for people, I think. I don't think it's about me necessarily assisting people, but more that I couldn't not tell my view of things, and that's the point in a way. So it was learning together about things. You know, I had assumptions which were challenged around a whole bunch of things, whether that's policing or family or um, experiences of violence. Um, and we learned together and changed our minds together in different ways and disagree on certain things and agree on others over time because they're, yeah, they're people I know, the four guys especially and a few others I know really well um, and speak to now still. So, I mean, probably send this to uh, a couple of them. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, so that kind of idea that you're learning together and changing opinions together is is definitely what happened in my work and I also think part of the reason people might have appreciated sometimes talking to me is because I was talking about things in different ways to people that they might often talk to about these things in ways that are kind of I I mean I think the four and this isn't true of everyone it's not but I think they liked the analytical conversation Mm. I mean, people who've been deported, believe me, more than any... And actually, anyone who's been in prison, I would, I would say, thinks about their life reflectively more than any, more than any, more than any of us. Because it's, <laughs> it's like, it turned on a few things. So, yeah. you know, the reason I was spent three years in a cage is because that night I did this or because I started hanging out with this person or because the police had it... Because, you know, because I went out that night when I shouldn't have. Uh, the reason I can't see my child again is because of this, this and this. So they're kind of the best interlocutors for asking questions analytically and want to think analytically. And all I, two people having a conversation means that we share each other's way of analysing things. I'm, tr- I'm an ethnographer, again, scare quotes, uh, trying to understand someone's way of understanding their world. And they're someone who's been deported with this weird guy asking them loads of questions and with a dictaphone who's talking and perhaps in these kind of funny ways about police racism and about the state or whatever it might be. So yeah, that's the that's the reality of the encounter is it's not uh, an attempt to get some pure undistilled version of events but actually an ongoing attempt to work some stuff out. Did you have any kind of this, the stats on deportation? So where are we, do you know where we are currently? Are we like sending like crazy amounts of people away or I don't know? Home office do have stats. They're quite slippery because <clears throat> the categories change uh, so, for example, in Fort, you have voluntary departures. Who knows how voluntary they are? You know, when you're told you have to leave and you leave. And then enforced removals. But enforced removals have actually gone down since 2002, probably. And they, I think they went up to two, in 2006. The thing we might be forgetting pre-hostile environment is the Labour's kind of brutal. In fact, Labour, you know, new Labour's introduction of immigration policy, that's where it all explodes. And just the introduction of legislation, criminal legislation as well, with new Labour. So... Um, that was a time at which detention centres were all expanded from, you know, a couple of, of tens of people capacity to be detained in 97 to, you know, 3,000. 
now at any one point. Um, deportations, you know, tripled or whatever under New Labour. So and that was particularly in the kind of struggle around or bat war against asylum, people seek claiming asylum. So the numbers have gone down, actually, partly because if you remember, if we can go back to Tony Blair talking about how we're going to deport more people than claim asylum mm -hmm. and all these kind of horrific things. Um, and the foreign, the foreign national prisoner issue is, is with New Labour. So the numbers have gone down, but I think it's about 14,000 enforced removals mm -hmm. and double, double that voluntary departures. Voluntary departures, I send you a letter saying you have to leave and you won't be able to get healthcare or driving license or da 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 and you leave. So you, do you, so if you receive that, you, you lose access to the kind of function of the state, so things like healthcare, well, welfare state provision, basic yeah. benefits. Okay. Well, that's why when Theresa, the hostile environment which is a term we all are familiar with now, but that was Theresa May in 2012 saying um, the hostile environment is intended to create a really... Uh, sorry, the, the, the Immigration Act is intended to create a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants, effectively to mean that any any way in which they try to seek means of life mm -hmm. will be will be restricted, will be bordered. So the sharing of information is particularly important among <coughs> databases from... From the healthcare, from schools, you know, school census, universities. universities, of course. So there's that was what the hostile environment was to do to make it unlivable for people who who didn't have their stay. And is she is deport now? Appeal later? Who? When was that brought? That in? was her in 2012 as Home Secretary. Right. That so, was ruled um, was actually ruled unlawful by the Supreme Court. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, that was but they're still big. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't it, it doesn't necessarily stop the deport. It just adds another layer of kind of. Opportunities to appeal. It means that you can't deport someone and suggest they can appeal from abroad because that's that won't that's been proved to be unworkable or discriminatory under the kind of right to hear a, a trial. But it still means the same kinds of people might be deported just through different. You see, I was going to say when you're seeing these people being deported, I was going to ask: Are they kept in? Some are kept. I assume some are kept in detention centres that are mm -hmm. purpose built, but most are put in. Are they put in prisons? Most will be in detention centres, okay. so they should. Uh, there is an agreement between the Ministry of Justice and the immigration authorities about about transfers between prisons. So people, some people are kept in in prison after their sentence under immigration powers. So they're not under being held uh, under criminal law. They're being held under okay. under immigration law. But most people will be in detention centres. Okay. Minors and adults together. I mean, the UK did pretty much stop detaining children mostly. So there's still some people who are detained with families, but mm -hmm. not many. Um, I mean, deporting children is more difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, the way in which it normally happens is deport mum and say either kid goes into care or you go with your mum. So you effectively, and that, that, that person who goes with mum might be uh, a British citizen, for example, which is another whole issue that effectively mm -hmm. British citizens can be forced to leave through parent parents not being, having rights. It's fucked, man. It is absolutely... <laughs> it's, it's so deep, man. Didn't we say we are going to try and end on something? I know, I know, we were going to try... Like, I guess one more thing I think we've got time for for you mm -hmm. to speak to, Luke, is sort of where we're at now in this moment where apparently a couple of months away from Brexit, looking back to the referendum in 2016, different, various... Like, we had the Wimrush scandal, which obviously is quite an annoying term because obviously as you say like it's been going on for a long time mm -hmm. um the press just care about it or yeah. seem to care about it now um yeah i guess these more present things can you talk to that a little bit i can try to i mean brexit's a mess that's what we're all yeah that's what we're all dealing with at the moment but I'm, i suppose the point i made about the political theater of all this and how mm. absurd it all seems you know people my friend was saying that people who she's she's got friends who are abroad and they're like it just looks like a mess. What's it really like? And she's like, it's just a mess. So anyway, so there's this theatre going on that seems unconnected from, from real, from anything that politics even used to have to pretend to be talking about. But I suppose what I'm concerned about with Brexit is what we are still looking at, despite sometimes it being frustrating to have the kind of liberal remain, mm -hmm. especially white middle class claim that this is, that I'm, a, you know, I'm suddenly being treated like people from the former colonies have been for a long time, is the reality that three million people are going to lose a set of rights which have meant that they can have some stability in life and that therefore the, the kind of breadth and the, the net cast by the immigration regime, which is completely dysfunctional, is going to be extended and that that won't affect all equally. The neuroscientists from, from Germany will be fine. The academic, most of the academics with permanent jobs, for example, will be fine. 
even if they're in the Guardian more than the people who will be affected, which, as I was saying, is, I think... It's before we recorded, you were Karam did, Yeah, so Karam, which is a children's legal charity, did a report on, and they said that there were, so there are 5,000 EU national children who live in care. There are, they reckon 10 to 15% of the 900,000 EU children will be, uh, 10 to 15% will, might struggle to register for different reasons, evidentiary reasons, not having documents. Um, and the people, of specifically the 5,000 in care, will, might struggle to pass the kind of good character elements of what you need to do to register or to become British. My point then is that like, it is going to be a mess legally and bureaucratically when the UK leaves the European Union if, um, and people are suddenly you know, denied rights and effectively illegalised along familiar lines of race, class and kind of region. So that's what I'm thinking about with Brexit. When, we, when are we going to get to the point where the struggle is actually about what's happening in the legal and policy context in immigration control? Because at the moment, we just have to deal with the unknowns and the theatre. Um, you were talking as well um, in our discussion before we recorded about the black and brown Europeans yes. that live in the UK, which hidden population yeah, in terms of who gets to talk about their rights and how Brexit will affect definitely, their rights. Yeah. So I was saying that the... People who I know who work in the detention sector, noting that people who are from Western, Northern Europe nationals are black and brown, tend to almost overwhelmingly be. So it might be French people of Arab or African descent, Dutch Somali case that I heard about. And these are the people who are actually facing the border already, who are actually already permanent residents. This is the the thing I'm worried about with Brexit. Um, So that's, that's where we're at. But I also think... To go back to the point on the young people, on young people, I think there is also some really interesting and hopeful stuff happening around politics of resisting borders. You had the kind of Stansted fifteen case, but the people in the whole there's a, there has been a sort of radical turn, I think, within the migrant sector. Whether that's around ambitious calls for things around detention, whether that's ending charter flights, and so the Labour Party, and I'm not trying to necessarily say all will be fixed if Corbyn gets in. But the point is that the kind of terrain might change, the kinds of demands you can make might change because they've said that they'll close two detention centres. They've said that they'd stop charter flights. So this is also a thing we have to kind of hope for is that Mm. the political nightmare that we're in now shifts so that it becomes possible to build on the energies of a lot of people in Britain who thought the hostile environment stuff was really mean and nasty. Mm -hmm. The people who think maybe immigration isn't the main issue right now, maybe we need to sort out some other stuff. And the young people who are coming together around climate, for example, but also the the populations you describe. Uh, Some of, you know, I've met some young people in London doing kind of interesting education projects with Consented, which is a kind of publication and education charity. And they, you know, they're they're amazing kind of critical awareness. And young people, it might be that, you you know, this this Brexit thing was an age, that was the thing. It wasn't class, it it wasn't the white working class exclusively, it was... It was age that was the clearest. White marker. middle class as well. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But it yeah. was it was you know people under forty didn't. Yeah. And people under forty would probably vote Corbyn in. So there's some energy there that we need to be ready to mobilise, and that should be our hope: is that actually the younger population and the people in cities and working class people are not the version of the working class that the kind yeah. of white human uh, communitarian leftists I, are saying they are. I think, I think for me, hope lies around. I think oddly enough around climate change because mm-hmm. it reframes arguments of migration and movement because it affects places differently. Mm. So like I remember oddly enough I was on the train one day and this random guy was sitting next to me and he was a nuclear physicist and he started talking about climate change and he said have you realised we've seen the first climate change war and he, like he's talking about Sudan and the foreign people moving because climate change has mm. affected the, the ground so mm. and pastoralists I'm like I didn't really know that, but yeah. it's, it's already affected, it's making people move and have, it's, governments have to think differently about moving because people are going to have to move because that terrain will be, it's unlivable. This is why we need to be fighting all of the tech, both the kind of technological advances in bordering, whether that's the things you described in, in Niger, whether that's fingerprinting, whether that's face recognition technology, and um, whether that's sharing databases between the DVLA and the NHS and Education England and the Home Office. We need to be fighting against the hostile environment, not just because we're thinking about the people who are here, but because we're thinking that the stakes couldn't be higher in but, terms of what the... Yeah. But you see, that's interesting what you said that, because when I see states now, they're looking to China and how they police their mm, population wow. digitally. So using facial recognition, bordering and fingerprinting. So this is how they've been able to kind of, kind of um, repress the Uyghur population mm. through technology. 
Mm. And it almost seems benign because you don't see it. Because you just you just walk through things and it's, it, it's, I think the kind of weaker population is categorised into three categories without them knowing. Yeah. And it's interesting to see how that technology is being brought over here. So in like, in Oxford Street, you have facial recognition. So you won't know it, but you're part of it. Your phone Which is you. devastating to thinking about bordering. It mm-hmm. is. It does, you don't need terrifying. detention anymore. No. <laughs> so the weaker population, like I said, they're, they're, they're trapped in one area effectively. And that's over a million people. Mm. And that is a perfect example to states, how can, you, how can I police my population without them getting, especially when we talk about our rights being mm-hmm. violated. So you, you, just, you consent to it because you think, well, what have I got to hide? Mm-hmm. So you'll give them your fingerprints, you'll give them this, you'll give them that. And, like, and there's no choice in a way. You know, mm-hmm. what you, how are you supposed to do anything without? Yeah, you can't, you can't opt out. You can't opt out. But we said we're going to win another minute. Um, <laughs> I've got a nice pair of trainers on today. What are they? Oh, they're fresh, yeah. What are yours? Nike Air Ultra. Okay. Had them for three years. They're nice, they're nice. They look very clean. <laughs> they are very clean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Luke, thank you so, so much for joining us for the last in this season, our 50th episode. <laughs> thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. We've got another episode for you coming up for a price of a couple of coffees a month. You can get an extra episode and after each episode and help us with our production costs and reach more people as well. See ya.